Good afternoon and welcome to Taking Ship, a podcast about cultural politics, political culture, and why air raid quarterbacks are going to start succeeding in the pros so haters to the left. I'm Frank Spring, joined as ever by Ellie Jacobs, back-to-back winner of Mr. Congeniality in Life's Rich Pageant. Hey, Ellie. Hey, Frank. Good to be back on the same continent as you. I'd like to congratulate you on your triumph over Jason Chaffetz in the Octagon. I don't know if many people remember that that was happening, but as he's now on his way back to Utah to nurse his wounds for the next five to eight weeks and may or may not resign his seat from Congress. And uh, I'd do it again. (laughs) Your laurel crown and wooden sword are in the mail. Um, But to skip ahead to what we're not going to be talking about today on the 99th day of the Trump presidency is what he's accomplished in the last 100 days. Why, you may ask? Well, it's because it's a very short list of his actual accomplishments and campaign promises kept thus far. That's not to say he hasn't proposed some royally terrible things, but what has he actually gotten done? He's gotten one thing done. One thing. He got Gorsuch on the court. That's it. So a Republican president was able to get a favorite son of the Federalist Society confirmed by a Republican Senate. Bully for him. Bully. Which is also, you know, probably why he has a current 84% approval rating among Republicans, which is exactly what Ronald Reagan was at at his 100-day mark. Indeed. So, so much for the 100 days of Donald Trump. But today, friends, oh friends, today, April 28th, is a very special day here at Taking Ship. It is, in fact, an official holiday. For today, April 28th, is Ed Ball's Day. Ed Ball's Day. Ed Ball's Day commemorates the day when uh, then-MP and then-Labor Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer, Ed Balls, took to Twitter and tweeted the now-hallowed words, Ed Balls. And so, on Ed Balls' Eve, we are visited by three spirits, the spirits of Ed Balls' past, Ed Balls' present, and Ed Balls' future. Each is less successful than the last (laughs) at persuading the British electorate that Labor can be trusted with the economy. It's, well, it's, it's actually quite horrifying. And then the electorate wakes up the next day, votes conservative, and Tiny Tim is dragged out of an NHS hospital and tossed into the gutter to die like a dog. Happy Ed Balls Day, everyone. Happy Ed Balls Day. With that, we want to thank everybody for their comments, both positive and negative, and urge you to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at at @takingship and that's ship with a P as in paradigm. Uh, With Frank and I both on the same continent again, we're thrilled to get back into the habit of having a guest each week, and we've got a great one today, our friend and fellow Truman Project member, Lauren Katzenberg. Lauren is the co-founder and managing editor of Task and Purpose, a publication launched in 2014 dedicated to military and veteran issues. In 2010, Lauren moved to Kabul, Afghanistan, where she spent two years working for for an Afghan media company training local filmmakers and journalists. So she is directly responsible for some of that outstanding work coming out of the Afghan entertainment community. She previously worked for the Office of Naval Research as a communications analyst, and she is a defense council member at the Truman National Security Project, of which Frank and I are both members of. And she's a former editor of War on the Rocks and holds a master's degree in global media from the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. We'll get to Lauren in a few minutes, but Frank, first let's start with a quick quick review of the news on this, the 99th day of Trump as Commander-in-Chief. And in our continuing series of the Taking Ship Center for Children Who Can't Communicate Good and Want to Learn to Do Other Stuff Good Too, we offer this piece of 
important advice. If you're planning to do a lengthy tweet storm proving Trump has incorrectly stated some historical fact, don't do it. No one cares, least of all his very supporters. And with In that... Fact, generally speaking, good people, we fairly implore you, contain your tweet storms. And if you're going to do a tweet storm, number them. For the love of God, number the tweets so that we know where we are in the order. It's like trying to watch a season of, I don't know, 24 out of order. It just makes no sense. Mm -hmm. Moving on to another savvy group of motivated personnel, the three Republicans tasked with being the watchdog for the White House and to investigate all this Russia stuff have found new and impressive ways of just colossally fuck fucking things up. Devin Nunez, as we all know, has had to recuse himself because he was used as a patsy by the White House. Jason Chaffetz, who is recuperating from his sound beating in the octagon by Frank Spring, has decided he doesn't even want to play, it, play the game anymore if he can't spend all of his time investigating the Clintons. And Richard Burr, oh, that last great hope for bipartisanship and responsibility, has apparently been going out of his way to stymie the Senate investigation. And this could all add up to why, according to the latest NBC Wall Street Journal poll, 73% of Americans would prefer an independent commission to lead the investigation rather than a congressionally led one. This is the same poll that says 56% of Republicans agree with the statement that, quote, Russia is an ally, which is up 40% since 2014. That's right. In 2014, 16% of Russians thought that of, uh, of Republicans thought Russian Russia was an ally, uh, and now 56% do. So, we uh, in in conclusion, uh, no, we have no idea where we are or what we're doing. Uh, news at eleven. Hail Caesar! Hail Caesar! There you go. That's the spirit. Uh, but uh, you know, returning to the question of uh, of the House Intel Committee. Uh, or the House Intel Committee apparently agreed this week uh, to a witness list. They agreed internally to a witness list of 36 to 48 people. So we're now ordering witnesses by the dozen, which I think is correct. We take them by the job lot. Uh, a job lot of witnesses for the Russia investigation. Uh, prominent names include Jared Kushner, uh, now secretary of every goddamn thing in the world. Well, actually not a secretary, since that would include a nomination, a clear job definition, disclosures, and a Senate, conf Senate confirmation. He's really just the czar of everything. And if people remember over the last year, the GOP spent a whole great deal of time and energy screaming and yelling about the fact that Obama had appointed so many czars. Um, so Trump just decided to have one. Or two, I guess, if you count Putin. Indeed. That witness list, uh, the job lot of witnesses for the Russian investigation, always in also includes uh, Roger Stone, Michael Flynn, and Carter Page, because apparently the fucking Marx Brothers weren't available. So it appears that we've made some headway since Mike Conway took over the Intel Committee uh, after Devin Nunez slipped into what can only be described as a sort of waking coma, in which he is fully capable of everyday activities, but shows no higher brain activity. It's truly sad. The witness list is, I think, in part a salutary lesson for some of our progressive colleagues who are inclined to subscribe to what you might call the more elaborate variants of the Russian conspiracy theories. So it's essentially a matter of public record at this point. I think we can all agree. It's essentially a, a matter of record at this point that a, a Russian element uh, via the GRU, one suspects, put its thumb on the scale of uh, the election. And, and it is also essentially a matter of public record that people in the Trump campaign had relationships with Russians that they really, really should not have. Yeah, so the question really boils down to who knew how much and when did they know it? That's why this investigation is so truly imperative. Uh, otherwise, this is just going to go by night and we're never going to know anything.
Exactly. Uh, I mean, this investigation has to happen, and we really need a, a truly independent investigation uh, because it's a, a critical matter of national security. Uh, there is, however, a tendency amongst some of our comp- of our progressive compatriots, and I think this is an understandable desire uh, to draw the conclusion that what happened must have been a vast and con- and sophisticated conspiracy uh, in some variants dating back, uh, you know, more than ten years. Uh, to get Trump into power, to undo the Clintons, et cetera. That these are all there's there is a you know a very uh, developed and very sophisticated plan that was executed here, as opposed to uh, the GRU and and other related Russian malfeasance uh, simply playing a bunch of Trump adherents for fools. Uh, so I mean, and 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 I you know in the latter in in defense of the latter argument that this is basically. Uh, various elements within uh, within the Russian intelligence and, and you know business and criminal and and uh, and government they often the same guy wearing three different hats uh, playing uh, you know, playing the the various members of the Trump campaign for idiots. Look at the people on that witness list, the people that we just described: Roger Stone, uh, Michael Flynn, Carter Page, and ask if you were the GRU, would you trust any of these people with fifty bucks? Much less with a substantial a substantial part in a really serious conspiracy. Maybe Flynn, if those are the only options. Paul, yeah, Paul Manafort seems to know what to do with money. I sure. Guess. So there and there's certainly some, and I think this opens up a very real possibility that there were some people, especially someone like Paul Manafort, who may have had a larger and more active role in a scheme than others. But the uh, you know I think it's important to understand here that a lot of these people may have been. This is a a, a very real possibility. We need the investigation to even begin to make sense of this. A lot of these people were may have been played without necessarily being aware of what other people were doing. They may have each thought they were the hero of their own little conspiracy, uh, and in fact, they're simply being you know they have you know limited access to a portion of the truth. So uh, Flynn, maybe you would trust with some of this Manafort, maybe, but I mean Roger Stone is a a curdled goth steampunk cosplay enthusiast, and Carter Page. Carter Page is like a Coen Brothers movie character. I mean, he's the guy who gets killed in the first 20 pages of an Elmore Leonard novel. Of, basically, <laughs> he's a small-time hustler with a with a you know a modest dose of low cunning who sees a shiny opportunity that's so big it'll kill him and grasps it with both hands. I am looking forward to his testimony more than more than I am to Christmas. Yeah, it's gonna I mean, awesome. people who have watched some of the interviews he's done with the TV, it's just it's mind-boggling how quickly he just starts tripping over himself. So I think you know his testimony in front of Congress is just going to be it, it's something to get popcorn out for. It's going to be tremendous. Uh, but moving on to the thing that the Wu-Tang Clan tells us rules everything around me, money. In this particular case, Elizabeth Warren doesn't like pre- former President Obama making any. Wasn't um, it specifically cash? Yeah, cash and cream. If yeah, there we go. If you haven't been paying attention, former President Obama has accepted a speaking opportunity at a healthcare conference being held by Cantor Fitzgerald, a bond trading firm that if people don't know the history, it rebuilt itself after losing 68% of its workforce in the 9-11 attacks. Uh, that's right, more than any, or the, any other organization. Uh, in, in fact, 658 of its 960 employees, and because they had a, uh, a company policy to hire relatives, there were a lot of brothers and siblings and sisters and fathers and daughters and mothers and sons who were killed together uh, in those terrorist attacks. Um, so Cantor Fitzgerald is not really one of the bad guys, if you want to put Wall Street firms on kind of the categories of good guys and bad guys. Um, And Senator Warren has been critical of the president for doing this, and uh, many other people have as well. And I have just a few choice words for them and anyone else who have been losing their senses over a former president making some money, in particular, from this firm. 
mind your own goddamn business. Um, you're giving capitalism supporting Democrats a very bad name. So this is an opportunity to talk about kind of why this has created such a such an uproar. And and I will freely stipulate, of course, President Obama has a right to make money, uh, and and the way that he's doing it is a is a now established tradition. Uh, he's uh, and and he also before his campaign. Uh, and, and during his reelect, he raised money from Wall Street and then and then proceeded to regulate them, although the extent to which they were regulated and particularly the extent to which Wall Street actors were prosecuted for their roles uh, in the in the in the various uh, insightful and clever activities that led to the Great Recession uh, is a is a matter of real question and debate. Now, the idea that you can raise money from Wall Street and then proceed to regulate it, that's his spokesman's argument. Uh, so, but there is some truth to this, right? Like just because you take money from Wall Street doesn't necessarily mean you're a wholly owned subsidiary of them. Right. I mean, Wall Street doesn't quite have the power of the NRA at this point. Um, but if you kind of take a step back and think about the false corruption narrative about the Clintons during the campaign, it was based on the idea that she would not police and or would do favors towards uh, donors of the Clinton Foundation. Um, so instead of that, which was a false narrative, we ended up with a president who was actively profiting from his for-profit businesses, selling things to people looking to make hay with the administration. Sure. So here, I think, is the problem. This uproar is the over, again, uh, President Obama taking $400,000 to deliver a, a speech at a, a healthcare conference sponsored by uh, Cantor Fitzgerald. This uproar is the result of a systemic problem, one that's worse right now for Democrats, and it's worth getting into. And it goes back to what I see as one of the essential fault lines of, Americans, of American politics, one of the sort of the great problems that we face, which is in the post cold in the post world war 2 excuse me in the post world war 2 america wages and productivity used to be very closely linked uh, the more americans produced the more they were paid it wasn't on a one to one basis but you could see the line as american productivity increased american wages increased as well and that has a certain internal logic to it right the more you make the more you should get paid it makes sense those two lines wages and productivity began to decouple in the 80s and that process accelerated in the 1990s in fact it's referred to as the great uncoupling or the great decoupling uh, and this is not just an economic phenomenon it goes right to the heart of our understanding of what it is to work hard and play by the rules and win to paraphrase bill clinton america really since this process began and it's been getting worse over the last three decades has produced more but more Americans aren't getting paid more, and that value is going somewhere. Yeah, uh, you know, everybody gets a trophy. Um, a good example of this is actually a quote from an LA Times piece this morning. Uh, it's up on their Twitter feed, if anybody follows the LA Times, where they do this great thing. If you tweet one of their stories, it actually pops up, not just the headline, but it, used, it pops up a, a quote from the article, which is a really good way to get uh, readers. Um, it's an article about American Airlines agreeing to pay to a pay raise for both pilots and flight attendants. Uh, both, you know, are most likely members of unions, and this has been an ongoing debate with airlines and their unions. And American Airlines agreed to to the pay raise. Uh, what really caught uh, our attention was this quote from a Citigroup analyst: "Quote: This is frustrating. Labor is being paid first again. Shareholders get leftovers." Well, yeah, that's how profits work, you jackass. For instance, Donald Trump has said he will donate any profits from foreign guests who stay at his hotel in D.C. to the Treasury Department. Um, I can say with some certainty that that intern waiting at the loading dock for those heaps of money coming in by the truckload from this particular boondoggle is going to be very, very lonely for a long time. Yes, indeed. And, and I think that that, that that quote perfectly encapsulates the problem we're talking about here. 
which boils down to it it doesn't pay to work it pays to own right now it doesn't you know i mean and this this analyst is resentful of the fact that uh, the owners of capital aren't being uh, aren't being remunerated as quickly as the people who actually have done the work for american airlines uh, this is not a new phenomenon. Uh, it has always paid more to own than it has to work. That's as old as human history. Uh, what is new, or rather what is old come new again, is that in post-war America, wages were a path to ownership, right? That rising ta- that that uh, that rising curve of wages and productivity uh, meant that you were paid enough to buy something as a worker. You were paid enough to buy something that would make money for you independent of your labor. Like, so you could own something that would increase uh, your your material wealth. Uh, usually that thing was a house, uh, and, and sometimes it, those were also financial vehicles, uh, retirement, or you would earn enough through your wages that you could, you could get into the stock market. There are ways that you could, you could accrue enough through wages that you could eventually own capital, and that capital would make money for you. You might own a business of your own. As wages stagnate, and this again is what we have seen over the last three decades, as wages stagnate, that deal uh, you know, if you work, you know, through wages, you will earn enough to own and become part of, you know, and, and have, and through that ownership, you will increase your wealth as wages stagnate that deal, which we hasten to add, uh, for a lot of Americans, especially women and people of color has only been offered either in part or not at all. That deal is well and truly collapsing. And it's a foundational part of, of how we, of how America has sort of seen itself and its identity in, in the post-war world. Both parties are struggling to figure out what to do about this. We're really, really struggling with the consequences of it. Uh, and I, I would actually say the political tumult of the last decade is in large part due to this, this problem becoming more apparent and more severe. Uh, and the Democratic Party is pretty raw right now because we're trying to bridge the gap between uh, left and kind of center-left liberal about what to do about this. And when we talk about economic policy and tax policy and all, like so much of what we are as a party is really divided by this particular issue of labor versus capital. And because we're Democrats, we're making just an incredibly poor fist of making sense of this. I mean, we are, we are not doing ourselves any credit by how we're taking on this problem. In that context, uh, a leader of the Democratic Party, and President Obama is certainly that, taking a $400,000 speaking gig from Cantor Fitzgerald is – regardless of which firm it is, but, you know, from a Wall Street firm, is at the least spectacularly ill-timed. And so I think that's why we've seen so much uproar about this uh, and and why the, the timing of I think this is unfortunate. Yeah, I also think that there may have been some method to the madness of the timing and uh, having it come out right before the 100 days in the hope that not much media would be paying much attention to it or for a long time wouldn't be paying much attention to it uh, also opens up his possibilities of speaking to other groups that uh, – parts of the Democratic coalition uh, may think negatively of, uh, because this is sort of the hump that he gets over, and now we're not going to be talking about it as an issue anymore, because, oh, he talks to, talks to Wall Street banks, so who cares if he's going to talk to, I don't, I don't know, health insurance companies or something, who knows. All right, let's bring in our guest for today, our good friend Lauren Katzenberg, co-founder and managing editor of Task and Purpose, a publication dedicated to military and veteran issues. Welcome, Lauren. Hi. How are you? Good to be here. Glad to have you. Yeah, thank you for joining us, Lauren. We like to uh, to start off with a, a pretty simple question, uh, a fairly simple interrogative. Uh, where are you and why and how did you get there? You can answer that however way you like. Okay. I am currently in a phone booth in my office, um, which is in New York City. Task and Purpose head- is headquartered out of New York City. Um 
I got here three years ago. This is actually a long story. Um, after living overseas for four years, two years in Afghanistan, a year in London, a year in Namibia, and then moved home and I was living with my mom, unemployed, uninsured, um, and tweeting about unemployment and foreign policy. And my co-founder, Brian Jones, found me tweeting about unemployment and foreign policy as they were preparing to launch Task and Purpose. And he was like, hey, do you want to come to New York uh, to talk about this project we're working on? And I said, meh, fine. No one else will interview me. And I came down to New York City and I met Zach Iskell and Brian Jones and they pitched this idea of a publication covering military and veterans issues um, that really was from the perspective of the military and veterans community. And I fell in love with the idea and it will be three years on May 1st, actually. So that's how I got here. Congratulations. That's wonderful. And, and so Task and Purpose is sort of by and for veterans. Is that a, is that a fair characterization? Yes. So we, the way that we differentiate ourselves from, say, a Military Times or uh, Military.com or Stars and Stripes is, you know, we really started as just a two-person full-time staff. It was Brian Jones and myself in 2014, and we weren't trying to just tell the news the way that the, the media was. We were uh, creating a platform for, you know, service members, veterans, military family members to share their personal stories of deployment, of transition, of what it's like to be a military that's been at war since 2001. Um, and that's really how we built Task and Purpose. And as we got larger, um, we were able to bring on more full-time staff. Um, and now we have a full editorial team of seven people um, who are award-winning journalists who we're very lucky who are also veterans. Um, and so, you know, we still we still have that voice of uh, veterans and service members who write guest posts for us on the reg. Um, we are covering more news. We are breaking more news, but we're also able to cover, you know, national stories from a more nuanced perspective because everyone who works here is either has a military background or has an affinity for the military. Um, so we're doing more than just sharing the news or reporting the news the way that say, you know, NBC or CNN is doing. Um, and a lot of that supplements the reporting that you see from, you know, great reporters at Military Times and Stars and Stripes. Um, and, you know, once in a while we get to beat them to a scoop as well, which keeps them on their toes. So, Absolutely. Very cool. Um, all right, so this is kind of a broad question, but given our collective membership in the Truman Project, uh, it's one I'm kind of curious about, and I've really never asked or gotten a particularly in, um, incisive answer on, but um, what's the feeling in the vet community overall about veterans running for office? We're seeing and hearing a lot of veterans, about a lot of veterans that are thinking about running in the next couple of years. Um, and also kind of secondary to, secondarily to that, and maybe more importantly, what's the feeling in the vet community about being, I mean, lack of a better word, being used by currently elected officials as either validators or props or even worse? I think that, I mean, you have one misconception um, or one thing that I try to just dispel is that like there is in some ways a military veterans community, but it's also many communities. And so you have really great, strong veteran communities uh, in urban areas, D.C., San Diego, New York. Um, but then you have 
veterans who live in more rural areas where they're not close to um, to cities or places where they can envision themselves running for office or or for an op- like a role that's like where you see some a lot of veterans who are running for you know either uh, House of Representatives or for the Senate. Um, so, but I, there are also veterans running for local office. So I think in the cities, you're seeing a lot of enthusiasm around getting vets into office. Um, I know in New York, there's a lot of great initiatives. Um, and they also, some of these organizations are traveling to DC where they're bringing vets to speak with, um, uh, current lawmakers and politicians, some of whom are vets, some who are, and that's, awesome and really great to see. There's a lot of that going on in San Diego as well. I mean, I think there are a lot of people in this country as well in the veterans and military space that just, you know, they don't, they just want people representing them that understand their service. That doesn't mean you have to be a veteran or you have to serve, but you should be taking the time to really understand what it means to have served in the post 9-11 generation and what that means when, you know, we're sending troops back to Iraq or we're now sending troops into Syria or we're considering sending troops back to Afghanistan. And so I think having veterans in Congress or in um, running for office is great, um, but there is such a small population of veterans now that at the very least, there really is a need for people who just want, who are listening to this demographic. Right, right. Um, and then the second question, what was the second question? The second question was um, a, kind of a corollary to that, the idea of veterans either being used as validators yeah. or props, that kind of thing. And, and sort of, I mean, it always kind of strikes me as uh, strange and distasteful, but if, it, you know, if it's for a good purpose, then, you know, who knows? It, you know, it really depends on the person um, and the place. Uh, you know, what, what, if I look to like, say the online community, (laughs) the very vocal veterans online community, um, you know, if it's Donald Trump, I wrote an op-ed about this last week where Donald Trump was at Walter Reed on Saturday and he was, um, giving an injured veteran who, or service member, excuse me, who had been injured in March in Afghanistan, and he was awarding this individual a Purple Heart. And rather than saying, you know, thank you for your service, or we're incredibly humbled, or, you know, your bravery and courage will not go, um, will not be shared in vain, like he said, congratulations, this is tremendous. And just like the wording, it's like he was treating, he's treating the Purple Heart like a game show prize. And this isn't the first time he's done this. Um, last year when he was on the campaign trail, he was talking about how he always wanted a Purple Heart. Right. Um, and a retired veteran had actually given him one. And he said, this was a lot easier. Um, and so I think there was a very mixed reaction to that happening into my op-ed. Some people were, you know, they just appreciate the fact that Donald Trump is taking the time to go to Walter Reed to recognize this individual. And I certainly, I can also agree with that. But I think just this this, this disregard for how you're wording um, this honor and also, you know, not really recognizing the burden and the cost that earning a purple heart comes with and the sacrifice. Um, you know, I found disrespectful. I thought it was worth pointing out. Um, and there were a lot of people that agreed with that, but I think it's like really just where people stand. Um, you see it a lot as well. Like 
I think on one hand, the veterans community wants to be recognized and they want people talking about their service um, as they should be. But on the other hand, it's like, depending on who it is and what the day is, like whether they're going to see that as being recognized or being used. Right, right. Yeah, speaking of Donald Trump and some of the times that he just does and says really stupid things, there was a picture I saw today of uh, after he put the, uh, I guess, the Argentinian president uh, in his car, he patted the Marine standing outside the White House on the back, which just kind of astounded me. The photo itself as well, I'm not sure if you, I saw one um, in the AP image database and I was just looking at it and it's just such an awkward angle and he's almost, the way that they shot the photo, it's almost like he's like holding both his hands on, like, as he's he's like about to pat down the Marine, not just him a pat on the back. And so like the photo itself certainly is not doing him any favors, but he's just so awkward. It's like, why is every interaction you have? Especially with, you know, service members or veterans. Why is it so awkward? Yeah, like so, calling Mattis I, a soldier at the Pentagon. Right, yeah. Or he still refers to him as General Mattis when since he's retired. And, you know, since, now that he's secretary, the the title secretary outranks general. And right. he should be referred as, gen, uh, as secretary. And that's also really important because it's such a big deal that he had not had uh, seven plus years out of the military um, when he took this job and they had a waiver signed for him. Um, and so we should really be looking at Mattis as a civilian and not as a general. But, you know, when it when Trump feels like it, he calls him General Mattis or Mad Dog Mattis, which even Mattis himself has said, don't call me Mad Dog, call me Jim. <laughs> yeah, he hates that name, doesn't he? At least that's yeah, the, he does. what I've been told. Yeah, he does. Yeah. So speaking of taking <clears throat> troops, troop deployments, international security entirely too casually... Uh, in the finest traditions of our current president. Uh, are your readers looking forward to fighting North Korea? <laughs> yes, everyone's <laughs> super pumped about the nuclear war that's impending. Um, I mean, I think that there's like very quickly been like kind of this like increase in threats and tension, but it's already like the media, the coverage is oversaturated that people are already tired of it. Um, you know, there's a lot of like strong wording come out of coming out of DC and out of the white house. Um, but this is going to be handled diplomatically. And I, I don't think that, you know, anyone really expects that we're going to war with North Korea anytime soon. Um, that might be news to the president. I know. So yeah, I, I mean, so on Thursday he did that, he did an interview with Reuters in which he said, you know, um, he warned of a major, major conflict with North Korea. But he also, he acknowledged that they were handling this through back channels um, diplomatically, but it's very difficult. I think he's trying to put forward a very strong, we're not taking shit from North Korea, um, not facade, but that's like the, that's how he's angling himself and the White House. But there are, I imagine that there are many people handling this diplomatically involving China and supporting those diplomatic efforts. I mean, I hope you would hope. hope yeah. I don't uh, know. All I know is that we left Mike Pence out on the, you know, out on that lookout post, just staring at them. He's still out there, rain or shine, just, just just glaring. Try shooting your nukes at this mug. That's exactly right. God, that picture was so good. It reminded me just just unavoidably and irrepressibly of of like Hot Shots or The Naked Gun. It looked like something out of a parody. Uh, he so does look like Leslie Nielsen. That's it does. Look like, that's exactly right. It looked like Leslie Nielsen <laughs> playing the vice president. We should do a side-by-side side comparison of them. 
<laughs> we really missed a trick on that. All right, so maybe so maybe we're not uh, maybe we're not necessarily deploying everyone right now to North Korea. But on the subject of deployments, uh, there's been talk of of an increase. You may, and you mentioned this. There's been uh, yeah. talk of increased deployment to Afghanistan, uh, to Syria as well. Kind of what is, what is your sense of the direction of of both of those uh, potentialities? Well, I think that um, for months. So uh, in Afghanistan right now, we have around eighty nine hundred troops. Um, we have had folks from NATO. We have had General Nicholson, who's the commander over in Afghanistan, um, both testify saying that right now we've reached a stalemate in Afghanistan, which is really code word for we're losing. The Taliban are, you know, coming back into all of the provinces. Um, the Afghan National Sur uh, Security Forces are seeing um, increased casualties and um, there, there's, you know, we're we're losing the war in Afghanistan and everything that we fought for for 15 years, and so there's there's now been a call to send more troops back to Afghanistan, and so McMaster, the national security advisor, headed over to Afghanistan two weeks ago to meet with the generals, um, which I thought was interesting. That was right in the middle of the uh, chemical weapon um, crisis with Syria. Um, and meanwhile, then, you know, Trump sending his national security advisor to Afghanistan um, when, you know, he probably should have been by his side advising him. But that's a different story. Um, and then Mattis also, while he was doing a tour of the Middle East last week, also then made a, a surprise trip into Afghanistan to also meet with uh, senior leadership there um, to make some recommendations about whether we need more troops in Afghanistan or not. Um, he actually hasn't released statements on that. However, there was an announcement made this week that uh, Trump has handed over decision-making power to uh, Department of Defense about troop levels in Iraq and Syria, which is a departure from the previous administrations. Um, Afghanistan was not mentioned specifically in that. Uh, so I'm curious to see where Mattis is going to fall. But I think the issue is, you know, sending more troops to Afghanistan might help in the short term kind of quell some of these Taliban um, uprisings and attacks that are happening on security on the security forces there, but that, that's not a strategy. You know, what is our strategy in Afghanistan? And for a long time, it doesn't seem like we've had one. Um, so if we're going to send more troops to Afghanistan, there needs to be a strategy tied to that because our last strategy was, you know, transition out by 2014 um, and leave just a small residual force there of 10,000. And now, you know, everyone seems to be questioning that strategy because things are falling apart. So I... I'm, I, I'd like to think that Mattis hasn't made an announcement about recommendations because, you know, hopefully uh, defense officials are trying to look at what that strategy is. And so if there's an announcement about, you know, an increase in troops there, it's going to come with a bigger plan. But, you know, who's to say at this point? And it seems like I that's a really good point. It seems like, I mean, I'm sure there are a number of plans that have been sitting in various people's desk drawers for an occasion like this. But you know, in the absence of an Afghan of of an Afghan state that's capable of keeping out the Taliban, mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to see what a plan would be other than you know camp out there with ten or fifteen thousand guys for the next what you know and you know for the you know for what Gordon Brown once referred to as the next period of time, meaning and it's sort of an you know an, an unmeasured period in which we're just going to do this thing. 
Right, uh, so right. And now they're also fighting. They're fighting ISIS in Afghanistan as well. We just had two rangers killed by ISIS in Afghanistan and Nangarhar province earlier this week. So now you have, you, you know, you're they're trying to, you know, either uh, get rid of the Taliban or, you know, restart negotiations with them. And then they're fighting ISIS too. So things are just... <laughs> Oh my it's all, it's all, it's all yeah. happening. It's a happening spot, I tell you. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's no longer just that pile of rocks that everybody, that topples empires. Yeah. Um, so, you know, kind of moving on from uh, what's, you know, the potential horrifying to um, the uh, incompetently managed, I guess, would be a pleasant way to put some of it, although significantly better than it used to be. Um, you guys had an exclusive um, earlier in the week about that Congress is trying to pass a GI Bill Part 3 uh, by Memorial Day this year. Can you dive into that a little bit? Yeah, I can. It's dead. It's not going to happen. Um, that was brief. So, <laughs> yeah, so um, just to give some backstory to that. So for the last few months... Um, a number of veteran service organizations in Washington had been meeting at roundtables to discuss reforms to the GI Bill. There is some reforms that were um, proposed last year. Um, it is a great program. It's been hugely successful. However, it's incredibly costly, I believe, to the tune of $300 million. Um, and so there, you know, there are Congress is starting to look for ways to trim to make trims to the GI Bill. Um, and so, meanwhile, the veteran service organizations want to actually expand it so to provide more benefits for um, the family members of fallen service members. Um, there's also right now the, the GI Bill has a 15-year limit. So if you, you can only use the GI Bill if you've been out of the service for 15 years or less. They want to extend that to people who have uh, gotten out of the military prior to that. Um, so the, the VSOs were, you know, they were really in a roundtable not to put anything in writing, but to put forward their recommendations to, to negotiate and really try to keep this out of the media and out of um, the public eye because of what, because they knew what was going to happen and it happened, which was, um, you know, this idea of like what, which, which was posed, which was how about a $2,400, um, tax or I guess fee that you would you would charge service members over time that would come out of their paycheck so it's not $2,400 all at once but say it's a uh, $100 per paycheck would be deducted from their would be deducted from their paycheck um, and that would then enable them to use the post 9-11 GI bill uh, going forward and give them you know that could have more there could be more options around that in terms of like beyond 15 years. Um, but there were a number of VSOs who really are against this idea of quote unquote taxing the troops for a, be a benefit. Um, so ultimately these, these were recommendations. Some of them were in draft le legislation form, but nothing was introduced. It all got leaked to the media, including task and purpose. Um, but you know, and so the VSOs immediately, rather than, you know, trying to keep the conversation nuanced, they basically backed into their corners. So you have student veterans, <coughs> excuse me, student veterans of America, who's a, a younger veteran service organization. They're the ones that were actually like calling for um, this proposed 
fee for the GI Bill because, first off, they have done research that if you ask service members to pay into it, they're more likely to use it. And then you have more individuals who are going to college for free. Um, and then, you know, from there, receiving degrees, uh, transitioning smoother. Um, and also it makes it difficult for Congress to try to make cuts to the GI Bill if you have service members paying into it. Then you had uh, the VSOs on the other side of it, VFW, um, IAVA, who were who were saying, and American Legion saying, absolutely no cuts. Like we don't even want to have this discussion. We're not even going to entertain this idea. Um, and because this all kind of became a one side versus the other side, very much in the public eye, um, the hearing that was scheduled for April 26th, again, just to talk about these reforms, was completely canceled. And the chairman of the House Veteran Services Committee, Phil Rowe, just said this entire bill is off the table. We're done having this conversation. So now there will be no reforms to the GI Bill this year, most likely, um, which is unfortunate. Uh, and it's just inevitable. That's what happens. Um, it seems that right now Washington is so partisan that this idea of taxing the troops is immediately tied to, you know, disrespecting troops, disre disrespecting service, um, there's been a number of talking points that say, you know, if you're going to send our troops to war, you better be ready to pay for it. But ultimately, you know, we've been at war since 2001 and it's expensive and we can't continue going to war and also then paying for the service members and providing all these benefits that come after war. And so and that becomes a bigger conversation, right? Like, well, if we can't afford to give the benefits to the veterans that they deserve, then maybe we shouldn't be going to war. But that becomes a much more nuanced conversation that people just aren't having. Yes, that is a, as you say, a nuanced conversation. <laughs> you know, can can we pay for this war and everything that it means is, you know, frankly, that's that's that you know that that sounds like a a future problem as right. opposed to a as opposed to a now problem, and then the future arrives and you suddenly have to pay for it. Speaking of which, uh, since two thousand one, uh, our engagements abroad have created an entirely new generation of of veterans, uh, and and. Administering and providing services for uh, for that community has has been a much, has been a very public challenge uh, for the Veterans Affairs Department, uh, and so I wanted to ask you very quickly about uh, the new executive order that President Trump signed to create uh, an office uh, for employee accountability and uh, and a protection of whistleblowers. What's what's going on with that? Uh, well, it's a step in the right direction. There's certainly a need for more accountability for VA employees who are poor performers or or who are corrupt or, uh, you know, have con uh, misconduct. Uh, because right now, um, the VA cannot fire an employee, even if they're found doing something illegal, uh, criminal. I mean, you have, there was a nurse who... Um, was drunk while she was um, working with patients. This was a year or two ago. Um, there was a 30-day review period before that, that individual can actually be fired. Um, and during that period, they're getting paid. So you have people who have, have done some really you know, bad stuff and they're still getting paid and they can't be fired for 30 days. And so there's, there's a real need. And I think this is where a lot of people hope this executive order will lead is to give the VA more authority to fire employees who um, who need to be fired. Um, this executive order does not give 
uh, the secretary that authority. Um, but actually, the draft legislation, or excuse me, the draft of the EO um, hasn't even been released yet. So it's kind of unclear what it's actually going to do other than establish this office. Uh, an office similar to this actually already exists within the VA. It was established um, under Sloan Gibson, I believe, in 2014. Um, and it was really just a place to funnel complaints and to funnel whistleblowers so that they could be looked at um, and investigated. But yeah, I mean, hopefully this is not, you know, like Trump checking a box to say, well, we fixed the veterans problem um, and that there'll be continued to be more reforms around uh, the VA. Um, but we'll see. I think everyone's cautiously optimistic right now. Yeah, it sounds a lot like the rubber room situation that exists with uh, New York City uh, public school teachers. Um, but uh, we're coming up against our, our timeline, um, and we'd like to end these off with a quick lightning round. It's four rapid questions, um, and we'll dive in if you're ready, Lauren. I'm ready. All right, so what's the best book, TV show, or movie you've seen lately? One of each or just one? Oh, God. Okay, um... I just started watching Handmaid's Tale, which is really, really interesting. Highly recommend it. There's only three episodes so far on Hulu. Get your 30-day free trial to watch it. That's what I did. Um, mm. But it, it's a really, really interesting uh, show. Um, and I haven't read the book yet by Margaret Atwood, but I will. Uh, best book, I would say Wastelands. Um, there's a theme here. I'm really into like dystopian, apocalyptic <laughs> <laughs> Aren't Science fiction and Wastelands is a collection of short stories. There's a number of books in the Wastelands collection, but they're apocalyptic short stories. Got it. Okay, uh, moving on. Uh, what's your favorite drink, alcoholic or not? Uh, bourbon. Just bourbon. That works. <laughs> All right. Um, and keep it theme. <laughs> you don't even need a glass with that. Um, yeah, just a bottle. It's fine. So, um... In the Trump era, uh, lots of people are interested in doing something. Um, what's an organization you're supporting and why? Um, the ACLU um, and Refugee Rights, which are two organizations. Um, I have a number of uh, Afghan colleagues from my time when I worked in Afghanistan um, who have been applying for the special immigration visas, which Congress, um, they were not, Afghanistan was not included in the original uh executive order that Trump had put forward that was, was banning um, in Iraqi interpreters from coming over, um, but it's still making it harder for uh, Afghan interpreters and individuals who supported uh, the U.S. government um, to come into the United States. So I've been working with refugee rights who have been helping a number of these individuals with their applications and their appeals, and then just the ACLU in general, because now more than ever, we really need to be supporting vulnerable populations um, who need all the support they can get right now. All right. And where can people find you on social media? Where can they follow you? My Twitter account is L Katzenberg. You are welcome to follow me there. My Facebook is a little bit more private, mostly just like annoying pictures of me with dogs or me with my boyfriend being annoying. So you can try to follow me there, but it's not that exciting. So Twitter at L Katzenberg. All right, great. Uh, Lauren, thank you very much for joining us. And we'll have to have you on again sometime soon to see uh, how Trump is doing with the checklist with the uh, vet community. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, guys. It was a pleasure. All right. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, listeners. Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at at @takingship, and that's ship with a P as in profit. With that, Frank, where are we headed? We take ship this week for Area 51 in Nevada, and we might need an airship for this one. Uh, This week, the Department of Homeland Security opened its Victims of Immigration Crime Engagement line, the Voice line, which they seriously contend is a legitimate office meant to help people who have been uh, the victims of crime perpetrated by undocumented immigrants. I had previously thought that we already had something for that, that it'd be the criminal justice system, but what the hell do I know? Anyway, since its opening, the hotline has been so bogged down by calls reporting actual aliens that it's apparently unusable. Uh, DHS calls these people reporting aliens pranksters and other nastier names. But where there's smoke, there's fire. We at Taking Ship believe the DHS is covering up aliens and this thing goes all the way to the top. Friends, we take ship now for Area 51 and the truth. Take care, everybody.